0: G'day again. Um, I'm going to be reading the Bible today. Uh, today's reading comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 26. If you have a Bible from up the back, that's on page 898. I'll give you a moment to find it. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, they sent two of the disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many of the people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches from the fields. They cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day they went out from Bethany. He was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them. It is is it not written, My house will be called a house for prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves? The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started to looking, started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the next morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing.
1: Thanks, lucky uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's uh, Tim. I'm the 1045 pastor, and uh, it's my pleasure to be able to think a little bit more about this passage with us, but I'm going to... Pray for us before we do that. So let's bow our heads briefly. Uh, Lord, we do ask that you would uh, bear fruit uh, in us this morning through your word, uh, as your spirit convicts us, and as we read about your son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, it was uh, January 12th, 2007, and a man uh, took his violin case in a a subway in Washington DC. He placed it before him, opened it up and for the next 43 minutes he played six not very well known but very complex songs. As he did that, a total of 1,097 people walked past him. Uh, they would have been political aides, businessmen, chefs, uh, uh, you know uh, sandwich makers all kinds of different things and as every person walked past him they all had an opportunity to ask a question uh, do I want to stop is there something amazing happening here or do I just continue on uh, are they going to engage with uh, what is happening before them uh, what the passing crowd of people didn't know was that the busker was a name a man by the name of Joshua Bell he was a, a former a child of star a prodigy and one of the most talented violin players in the world. Uh, When he got to the end of his 43 minutes, uh, he reached down and he pulled out the $32 that he'd made in that time, and he replaced it with his Stradivari uh, violin, which was worth $3.5 million. And that night he would go off to a concert where people would pay upwards of $100 each just to hear him play. Uh, Josh Bell was part of an experiment that he and the Washington Post had put together uh, to see whether or not people could really recognise genius if it was happening outside of their everyday experience, where they would expect to see it. And the answer that they came up with was a profound no. Uh, With a mindset that was caught up on the day that they had, the stresses that they were thinking about, the things that they needed to get to, Uh, Almost every single one of the 1,097 people just walked past this virtuoso. Uh, One uh, young mother was interviewed and she said, "Uh, as I walked by I thought that sounds pretty interesting but I was worried that my two-year-old would get fascinated and I'd be stuck there for too long. So I had to shield my kid from the person who I own CDs of. (laughs) She was just not aware. Uh, The reality is that people often struggle to see beyond our expectation of something and to appreciate maybe uh, big things that are happening before us. It can happen in everyday experiments in a subway, Uh, but more importantly, it can happen when it comes to our vision of God and what we imagine that God might be doing in our lives day by day. Our thoughts and our expectations can be so small that we fail to see a God who is truly able to exceed all of our expectations. And today we're going to see a story about that, but we're going to see it in what looks like five little vignettes. We have a story of a donkey, an entry, a fig tree, a cleansing, and then finally some praying. But in these five little stories, there really is actually this one big story about how we understand the world we live in and how our understanding can shape and sometimes put blinkers on our expectation. I don't know if you've had a big weekend this weekend. Maybe you were out late last night with some friends. You're feeling a little bit snoozy this morning. So I'm going to give you the big idea of the sermon right here so that if we have a chat at morning tea, you can at least sound like you were paying attention to the whole 25 minutes. (laughs) Quite simply, today we're looking at the fact that a bigger vision of God leads to bigger prayers for his kingdom. A bigger vision of God leads to bigger prayers for his kingdom. It sounds something simple like, a, uh, like a, a motherhood statement, but we're going to see there's a lot more to it. So let's jump into that with our first little vignette, the story of a donkey. Well, we've been following Jesus' journey to Jerusalem each week. We've, we've gotten up and either Ed or Chris has used those phrases. We're on the journey, we're on the, the, the passage to Jerusalem. And this is the day where we actually arrive. But as our story starts, we're actually just outside of town. Uh, Bethany and Bethphage are about three kilometers east of Jerusalem, and we know that because that's where our Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Jesus' friends, live. Uh, I suspect it's one of those little relatable moments. Jesus has finally arrived at the Big Smoke, uh, but things are pretty expensive when you get to the Big Smoke, so he decides, well, I'll stay with some mates who live just outside of town, and then I can pop in day by day. Uh, For lots of people, the chief interest in this passage, though, is Jesus sends two disciples in to go and get this donkey. What's the story with that? Is this a moment where uh, God has uh, enlightened Jesus in the kind of way you see in the Old Testament? Like a prophet, He is imagining that there is going to be a donkey at a place and it's going to happen. Or is this just a sign that Jesus is preparing for this ministry? He sends these two guys in because he's already pre-prepared that there's going to be somebody there with the donkey uh, and they just have to get it from him. Uh, I tend to lean toward the former rather than the latter but I'd be happy for people to land in either direction. But more importantly, I think when we get caught up in some of those details and we'll see two more things like this in this passage, uh, we can actually miss the bigger picture. We can focus so much on how did Jesus arrange to get that donkey there and less about what is Jesus actually thinking about when he does this. After all, throughout this whole journey, we haven't been told that he's needed an animal to ride on before at all. Why does Jesus suddenly decide, I need to ride something into town? And we're going to get the answer to this when we consider the second little story of an entry. Uh, Years ago, uh, somebody told me a a fascinating and apparently true story about a church minister in Scotland uh, that got invited uh, to go up uh, to Balmoral Castle, which is the Queen's summer residence in Scotland, Uh, And he got to preach on a Sunday morning to the Queen. Uh, So he he arrived uh, kind of mid-afternoon on the Saturday. He was very excited, feeling a little bit anxious. Uh, He put his stuff in his room and then the attendant said, you can go walk uh, around the castle and around the surrounds if you want to. And as he walked further and further out, he came to a river and then he saw an elderly gentleman fishing by the side of the river. And when he went up to him, he found out it was actually the Duke of Edinburgh. And so he had a conversation for about 25 minutes uh, with the Queen's husband. He thought, this nothing could get better than this. This is so exciting, until he saw a Range Rover drive up and out of the driver's seat popped the Queen herself. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, from you tomorrow. And then she gave uh, the Duke of Edinburgh and him a lift back to the castle. Uh, This was the moment where the man realised that the following day, There was going to be all of the pomp and circumstance. She was going to be dressed up. He'd be wearing his his dog collar and all of those things and he would be speaking to the queen. But today, she was just a wife who was driving to pick up her husband because he'd been fishing. There was going to be a glorious exercise in the future, but at the moment we had glory and humility meeting in the same place, a wife who loved her husband. Uh, Well, if you read Matthew or John's account of Jesus' uh, entry into Jerusalem, they make it blatantly clear what it's all about, but we need a little bit of a hint here in Mark. Uh, The answer to what is going on we can see in Zechariah 9.9, where we're told, uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. The reason why the donkey was important was not that Jesus had special knowledge about where a particular animal was, but that he understood the bigger story that he was part of and that 500 years ago in the book of Zechariah there'd been an anticipation of God's great forever king arriving. So as crowds of people most likely excited because of Jesus' reputation crowd the streets and they put leafy branches and clothes down so that the donkey doesn't even have to touch the ground, They shout out a quote from the Old Testament Psalms, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is a moment of glory, but also a moment of humility as the two come together. In the midst of this climactic moment, people might have expected a king to come on a powerful war horse or maybe he'd be like David some Absalom who we can read about in the Old Testament. He had a a chariot and horses and 50 men who surrounded him at all times. But instead, Jesus meets the expectation, not of the people, that what they might have expected of a great king, but of the scriptures. He arrives in humility, entering the city on a pack animal. Now, Jesus is coming in glory, but humility precedes glory. But where this fellow in Balmoral knew that he still had this exciting thing to come ahead, he was still going to preach to the queen in the next day. Actually, in this story, did you notice we see a real anticlimax? Jesus has fulfilled prophecy. He's arrived in the city of his destiny. Uh, People are are watching him travel toward the uh, the temple. And then look how unimpressive the end of the story is. Verse 11, if you have your Bibles open, that's great. Uh, He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went home to Bethany with the twelve. This reads like the, the New Testament Sort of version of waiting weeks and weeks for a package that you've ordered on Amazon. And then when you hear a noise out the front, you get excited, you go out to your letterbox, you open it, and it's that piece of paper that says, nobody was home, so you'll have to come and pick it up some other time. A triumphal entry ought to lead to a triumphal reception. If the kingdom of our father David is coming, as the people had been shouting in the streets... And surely this is going to be a big thing. The temple is going to be excited. It's going to be a buzz. But we see that the people in the temple, their vision of God is not big enough to consider that maybe this man who's arrived in the town could be the Messiah they've been waiting for. And so instead of anticipating a saviour, we're going to see shortly that what they see instead is a threat. But firstly, what we get is what appears to be a digression as we come to the story of the fig tree, uh, right here we have another example of how we can get caught up in some of those details and thinking too much about the details, we might m- miss out on the big picture. Uh, they leave the next morning, they're heading back into town, Jesus passes a tree, it has no fruit on it. Uh, the strange thing is Jesus curses the fig tree when Mark notes it wasn't actually the season for figs. Now, we could get caught up in those details. Is it because fig trees actually have uh, two kind of fruits? They have the the right fruit and a false fruiting time? Is it because uh, there was something else going on? Uh, Well, uh, we can get caught up in that, but the principle actually remains. Uh, Fig trees are one of the most abundant fruits in the ancient Near East. Uh, They were planted by people in their farms. They also just occurred wildly. Uh, They were something where people could confidently go if they wanted something to eat and they might be able to get it for free. Furthermore, when we look in the Bible, we see that there's lots of expectations about what our figs actually point to. We could go to Hosea 9 verse 10, and this is what we'd read as a fig as a metaphor for Israel. I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your ancestors like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Or we could go to 1 Kings 4 and see how a healthy fig tree is a sign of abundance and God's favor on his people. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. So when Jesus approaches what looks like a healthy tree and finds nothing under it, uh, under the leaves, his curse is uh, one that would come to bear fruit, that uh, no one would come to see fruit on this tree again. Are we going to keep this in mind? How do we actually understand this? We're going to see this as we get to uh, story number four, The Cleansing. If a fig tree in the Old Testament was a metaphor or a symbol of God's favour on his people, his abundance, uh, then the temple is a sign of God's presence amongst his people. It was a sign and a symbol that God was with his people, that he dwelt amongst them, that he loved them, that he cared for them. But what Jesus finds is something really different. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, when I was uh, newly married with uh, my wife Shona that we got to visit the Louvre in Paris. Uh, We went there, we got told the one thing you have to see is the Mona Lisa. So I remember walking past a whole bunch of aisles and thinking, I'd really love to go down there, but we have to get to the main thing. I remember actually getting to the room where it's in, and as you stand in there and there's a big queue, uh, I look behind me and there's a painting called The Wedding at Cana, uh, a biblical painting, and it is 10 metres wide and 7 metres high, so even bigger than the backdrop behind me. I'm thinking, well, that's exciting, but I'm waiting for the Mona Lisa. And then when you look in front of you, you realise uh, you don't really get to appreciate it. I remember being told that it is the perfect example of the sfumato brush stroke, but I couldn't get close enough to see because there are security guards and a, a, a rope between me and the actual painting. I would have liked to have seen how her eyes are supposed to be kind of eerily following you no, ever, no matter where you are, but I, I couldn't because there were lots of other eyes looking at me as they were jostling so they could get a picture uh, surreptitiously. I realised that in the end, the only way to get a real appreciation was to buy a poster or a bookmark or something else uh, in, the, in the store afterwards. Uh, this is the sense that we get as Jesus enters the temple. We're told how important the temple it is and the different ways that people connect to worship. Uh, there's rules about sacrifices there because people are supposed to bring uh, some of the best of what they have to say, God, I want to offer you my best because you are the best. But instead, we have hawkers just selling stuff like a marketplace. People came to make a donation to the temple to help uh, God's uh, uh, priests, just as it said in Exodus 30. But again, Jesus arrives and there are uh, money sellers there because uh, the temple will only take one type of coin called the Tyrian shekel. And so they make a lot of money as they do exchange rates with people. Jesus comes with all of this expectation, and we come with expectation, but there's no delivery. He can't appreciate it because of all of the mess, and so he pushes people out of the temple. Jesus makes his expectations clear by teaching in the temple from Isaiah 56. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves the temple that is supposed to be a place that represents God's presence and his abundant goodness to his people, when you look at it from the exterior, it looks fruitful. But when you look under the leaves, it's not bearing fruit. If you want an indicator of how fruitless the temple is, look at the response to Jesus' teaching. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by Jesus' teaching. I've been reflecting on this uh, this week, uh, that uh, as I read a story like this, the easy thing for me to do is always picture that I'm the disciple in the story. Uh, I'm following along with Jesus. I'm watching. I'm observing. I'm seeing those nasty Pharisees. They just don't get things. But my challenge for myself this week is to realize that often I'm like the Pharisee. Uh, that Jesus uh, challenges what's in my heart, and I find it easier to kill off and to push away Jesus than to challenge the idols of money or comfort that I've led into the temple, that is my own body. Well, when Mark revisits the fig tree in verses 20 to 21, we get a, the completion of what they call it like a story sandwich. In the uh, kind of theological circles, they call it an inclusio. You have the bread on either side, which is the story of the fig tree, but the bread really points toward the filling of the sandwich, which is the important thing. God's people, Israel, are like the fig tree that is supposed to bear fruit. If Jesus was to leave them to their own devices, though, it's clear that it would just wither, that it would just die. We could turn to 2 Timothy where we're going to see Paul say that Christians should be ready to bear fruit in preaching God's word in season and out of season. But here Jesus has arrived at the temple and it is a fruitless place. Many commentators believe that as Jesus curses the tree and that it withers, what he's actually doing is pointing toward the reality of what is going to happen to the temple. We know that about 30 years later in 70 AD, the Romans will finally come through and they'll destroy the temple altogether. Mark understands this imagery clearly, which is why he tells the temple in the middle and, a, and these pieces of bread on either side. But of course, we see that the disciples don't get it. Mark tells us this story, so we have a bigger picture, but it, straight away, the disciples really don't understand what's happening. On what we assume is the next morning, they pass by the same spot and Peter appears amazed that the tree, the tree that Jesus spoke to is actually withered. And what comes next is one of those passages that can really confuse us. Uh, What is Jesus getting at when we get to some praying? Uh, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and he doesn't doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray for and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. How do we make sense of a uh, passage like this? Uh, Does it mean that as we're praying this morning that we should see Canoblis, uh, Gunnabula uh, thrown down into Cronulla and it disappears? Could this mean that next time I'm driving to Sydney, I could say a word of prayer and the Blue Mountains could become the Blue Mole Hills? Uh, Wouldn't that be fantastic? Well, to tackle this, I want to say three things. Uh, What is Jesus saying clearly? Uh, What isn't he saying And then I'm going to give us just a speculation. You've got to have a bit of speculation in a sermon. Hopefully not heresy. Uh, Firstly, what is he saying? Uh, Well, as I said at the beginning, a bigger picture of God leads to bigger prayers for his kingdom. And I think here Jesus knows that the disciples' picture of him is too small. It's so small that even though they've been following him for three years, they've seen him heal the sick and give sight to the blind. They've seen him uh, feed thousands of people with a small amount of stuff and yet Peter is still surprised that he curses a fig tree and it withers as if that was something big or an impressive for Jesus to do. We'll see how small their vision is in coming days because they're going to desert him. Peter, who is so enthusiastic, is going to deny him. And eventually uh, at Jesus' resurrection, we're going to find that the disciples are huddling in a back room If their vision of Jesus was big enough, then they would understand what is going on and they would be bolder in the following days. So what Jesus is saying clearly is, you need to have more confidence in me. Uh, But there is also something that I think it's not saying when we think about the context of Jesus' ministry. And that is the idea that we assume that if Christians have a bigger version of Jesus, then I can say something and God does it. If I if I say, move that mountain, he moves a mountain. If I say, give me a Lamborghini, God gives me any car that I want. Now, the problem with this attitude to prayer is that it removes the throne from Jesus' head and it puts it onto my head. Uh, if Jesus is teaching this, he's saying, whatever you ask, you can have whatever you want. But of course, we know that for thousands of years, the problem for Israel has been that they want to make themselves kings, that they want to do what they want instead of what is about God's agenda. We see this when Jesus has been teaching the disciples how to pray. Your kingdom come, that's God's kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just three chapters after where we are today, in Mark 14, Jesus himself will say, all things are possible for you, God. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. Jesus' point is not that the disciples should be levelling mountains willy-nilly, that our confidence in our prayers is that we can you know, believe and we can receive whatever we want, but that if we put our trust and faith in God, God is capable of doing amazing things for his kingdom according to his will. And here's where we get into the slightly speculative bit. Uh, Theologian uh, Dane Ortland suggests that uh, what we see here is Jesus pointing and giving some hints about the great work, the awe-inspiring work that he's about to do. Uh, When he talks about the mountain being thrown into the sea, it's not just hyperbole to give you an idea of God doing great things, uh, but the sea throughout the Bible represents chaos and disorder. It's that thing that people don't know about and fear. And the mountain, of course, is the place where people go to meet God. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai, that's where he encounters God. When people build shrines, they build up up in the high places. And so as Jesus talks about praying and knowing that God could bring a mountain down into the sea, he may actually be prefiguring the great work that he is about to do. Our disciples, you don't have a big enough picture of your God. Because you're about to see that your God is willing to take the mountaintop man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, and throw him down into the chaos. That the mountain will go into the sea, that Jesus will die on the cross so that they might have the greatest answer to any prayer that we could ever hope for. That the God who made them loves them and knows them and is going to offer them new hope and a new future. The God who's willing to come down from the highest of places and be thrown into the lowest of places, who will take on human flesh, he's gonna die for our sin. If we believe that, how much more might we be confident that God is able to answer our other prayers according to his will? Friends, we want to pray boldly. We want to be people who pray for Orange and beyond. We don't want to be a fruitless church that has a a little picture of God, which is just for Sunday morning and maybe Wednesday evening Bible study, but we don't see it reaching out into anything else. But instead, we want to have confidence because we've seen how God has done miraculous things uh, here at OEC for 27 years as he has grown the church out of nothing. But it starts also with us. When I come to church on Sunday morning, uh, is my expectation that we'll have an hour and a half of teaching and praying and listening and we'll have some morning tea and then I just go home and I have Sunday lunch and I go on? Or am I prayerfully asking that God would be at work in my heart, that we might leave church today changed in a way that will shape the rest of our future might we be praying confidently that God is working in our town and that we would see true revival and change amongst God's people? Do I believe that the God who is willing to give his son to die for me and arise again is also willing to change the hearts of the person that I've been praying for to come along to simply Christianity? Or is my vision too small? That the people I pray for, they wouldn't really be interested in, in Jesus stuff or any of that thing that God can't really change me as I come to church. Now, Jesus wants us to bear fruit. Now, we know that God is capable because he shows us that He is capable and because it's not up to me but up to his spirit at work in me. And as he invites us on this journey, he asks us to have big expectations. God shows that he can use us And that as he finishes this passage, he invites us to take a small step with him in this. So that whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Not that God's forgiveness is contingent on something that we do. But that as we step out in faith, even if it's just in the confidence of a mustard seed, that we might echo some of of that mountain high love that God has for us. Let's pray about that now. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that you love us. We acknowledge that our vision of you is often so much smaller than it ought to be. Uh, Open our eyes, Lord. Soften our hearts so that we might expect change, that we might long for and look for your spirit at work in our lives and that we might be more confident in praying according to your will that you would open up people's ears and eyes and hearts in orange. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.